0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak to Annie Armstrong and Marianne Krasny, co-authors of the new paperback and open-access ebook, Communicating Climate Change, a Guide for Educators. Annie Armstrong is a PhD student in the Department of Natural Resources at Cornell University. Marianne Krasny is professor in the Department of Natural Resources and director of the Civic Ecology Lab at Cornell University. She is the series editor for Cornell Studies in Environmental Education and is the co-editor or co-author of numerous books, including Urban Environmental Education Review, Civic Ecology, and Grassroots to Global. I spoke with Annie and Marianne about best practices in climate change education and the many useful insights for educators featured in their new book Communicating Climate Change, which is available on paperback and also as a free ebook that can be downloaded directly from our open access website Cornell Open as well as Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Play among many others. So hello Annie and Marianne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi John. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having us here.
0: Well, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, We're up at... uh, Normally, I do these interviews um, via phone, but now I'm actually able to do one in person, which is nice, because you guys are right up at Cornell. And in front of me is your new book, Communicating Climate Change, A Guide for Educators. Um, The the third partner, the third co-author, Jonathan Schultz, is not here, uh, but you guys are, and thank you so much for taking your time uh, to talk with us. Um, So... You know, the, uh, climate change is always in the news um, and just over the past few weeks there's been a, a new UN report, uh, the new IPCC report, um, that's pretty distressing. It's very alarming um, and so your book is coming out at a perfect time because people need to, um, need to take action. So uh, with all the research that you did looking at climate change communication, the research in that, and environmental psychology research, what are what some advice you could give to educators who are very um, upset about the IPCC report? Want to want to help uh, change things for the best uh, in, regarding climate change and want to be the most effective educators as possible.
1: So I guess one place to start would be just thinking about where what people need in order to move in order to act on climate change and so the first instinct that that you might have is well if people just knew about climate change if they just understood if they just had all of the information then they would then they would take action and so that's what we refer to as the deficit model people just need more information and then they'll do this behavior that we hope they would do but with climate change there's so much information out there, and if you look at the Yale Climate Change Communication Center's reports on climate change attitudes in, in America and in the United States, you'll find that like 70% of the U.S. is aware of climate change. Okay. 55% of the U.S. thinks that climate change is anthropogenic. So that's a hefty chunk of the United States that, that has some sense that something's changing. Um, But hasn't necessarily moved to action. And there's some other research that actually shows that even the people who are the most alarmed about climate change still struggle to take meaningful climate change action. And so there's so, so, right, so information isn't enough. And that's where I think environmental education has a lot of power because environmental education often um, can involve actually doing an action. So whether that's um, doing a tree planting or doing some kind of um, riparian buffer planting, you know, doing some kind of restorative activity that not only does something to adapt or mitigate climate change, but also brings people together.
0: Nice. Yeah. I, I read your book, you had mentioned uh, the, the term that comes over that um, comes in the book over and over is collective action. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we're, we're told that, that we should obviously recycle and, you know, not use straws. There's always individual actions that people right. can take and you can feel good about it. But actually, this requires a much larger effort. What are some of the? You had mentioned a couple. What are some other efforts that that can uh, that need to be done to help address climate change?
1: Well, I think in the U.S., um, where we have, uh, we, you know, we have a representative democracy, that one collective action that you can take is working with your communities to organize to organize and actually try and change policy, or run for office, or support people in office. So that's kind of on my mind right now because we have the. November elections coming up. Um, so we have that option here in the U.S. Not everybody that we work, we work with the uh, international groups through our online courses in the Civic Ecology Lab, and not everybody has that option, but we have that option for collective action here. Yeah, So Marianne.
2: <laughs> one, because we also teach online courses for international audiences, non-credits, so they're more like MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses on Climate Change. Um, and we have very active social media, in Facebook and in China, in WeChat, um, that accompanies our courses. So there's always people sharing, you know, their resources, their ideas, their questions. I share a lot of news articles, and one of the things that we've been thinking about is, you know, you might have seen that there's a there's a lot of competitions like. You know, who's going to recycle the most, not so closely related to climate change, but, or who's going to turn, you know, which dorm will have the less, least heat or something, mm-hmm. but, or which house. So, it's often individuals, but I was thinking because we have these big Facebook groups, that one type of collective action could be that we have 2,000 people in our climate change Facebook group we all commit to something. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but that we don't just commit to something as an individual because that's 2,000 people, that's our network. But you have a network. Maybe you're on Facebook. You have some friends that follow you. Sure, sure, yeah. So we always think about organizations, right? That we're gonna change you know, city government or we're gonna work with Greenpeace or some nonprofit. But essentially, uh, Facebook or some other social media is almost like an organization where you could have influence. So if you want to take one of the climate change solutions, which might be you know, converting some of your meat and dairy, or especially beef and dairy over to a more plant-rich diet, um, you might think about you know, sharing it and ways that you can influence your own organization or your social network and not just be that individual taking that action.
0: Nice, it's, it's almost like you could, you could transform it into like a Fitbit. Yeah. People, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> people like take ten thousand steps, but maybe there's maybe there's an app here. Whoever's listening to this, you know, that you, know that, that you could have like a daily thing that you do, and then you check it off. Yes, I've done my X. You know, I've, I've I didn't eat a hamburger today. I had a vegetarian meal, right. whatever. Right. But have a little checklist of ten things you could do. Yeah, yeah that would be interesting.
1: Yeah. So one of the one at the end of the book, we profile several environmental educators who were part of this. Um, Climate Change Community Fellows project several years ago. That was an EPA funded project through Cornell, EPA, and North American Association for Environmental Education. And so one of those fellows went through the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation Training Program, which really emphasizes these community level uh, solutions over go home and recycle turn off your lights type solution. So one of the things that he emphasizes, this educator Adam Ratner emphasizes in his profile is thinking about how his organization, the Marine Mammal Center, models best practices. Like they have solar panels on top of all of their marine mammal displays, and then they use those as uh, talking points during their programs. They have electric vehicle plug-in stations hmm. in their parking lot and the staff compost. So assuming the compost is well done, than, and isn't releasing more methane, then that's another good. So, so they use their organization practices, the organization itself follows those practices, and then they use those as talking points for their community members.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice, I like that, I like that. Um, now going back to something that you said earlier, as far as the statistics, uh, in the United States, 70% of the American population is aware of climate change. Um, so more information isn't necessarily the way to get people to act. Um, what are some of the things in the environmental psychology research um, and the climate change communication research that, that um, is, is, can inform educators of, in addition to um, providing information, how can they frame their message in a way that's applicable and, and, and inspires people rather than um, allowing them to you know, step back and say, no, I don't like that. You know, how do you, how do you inspire?
1: So I think it depends on you know, some educators, like an educator in Ithaca, for example, might not have, might be able to, to start at a different place in terms of their climate change education than an educator who is someplace where there's a lot of skepticism around climate change. So for somebody who's working with an audience that's really skeptical about climate change, then um, I think coming at climate change as Well, first of all, not denigrating people as deniers is, you know, one step. Because a lot of the research in environmental and social psychology and climate change communication shows us that there. So, research from Dan Kahan at the Yale uh, Cultural Cognition Lab showed that people who are so Republicans or conservatives who are more clim- who are more science numerate, who who are good at science. Are actually less likely to to accept anthropogenic climate change than conservatives who aren't as good at science, mm. and the opposite is true for Democrats. So Democrats who are good at science are more likely to accept anthropogenic climate change than Democrats who aren't quite as good at science. Interesting, right? So and he explains this by saying that as you as you are more science numerate, more scientifically literate, you use those skills. To kind of argue your way out of um, out of the situation and find the information that confirms your sense of self um, and affirms your identity. So he calls that cultural cognition. It's also it's, it's, call that identity protective cognition. Looking for the for the information that gives you a sense of self. So climate change is really challenging for somebody who whose in group is a conservative in group and that that group says climate change is not something we need to worry about and so saying i don't believe in climate change or i don't accept climate change makes a lot of sense in that context because you want to fit in with who you who your group is so in terms of uh, uh, approaches in the classroom i think so what i what what i saw from educators in the southeast who are working with climate change education was they really tried to away from talking about it as a political issue at all, and use this module called Southeastern Forests and Climate Change put together by Project Learning Tree, and um, they actually looked, so what's nice about the, the beginning of that module is that they, and it could be applied in the Northeast too, or anywhere in the, in the U.S., is that you kind of go through a climate science timeline and you see that people have been thinking about this since the 19th century. And then the next step is to actually do some role playing where they are able to role play somebody who's not so keen on climate change or is, is a little bit more skeptical and, and, and role play people who are really concerned about climate change. And so kind of go through almost a deliberative, a, a deliberative process where you come to understand somebody else's perspective to kind of take the, the uh, conflict out of the air and move forward from there. But I think in so, okay, so this is a really long-winded response, and I apologize for that. Uh, In terms of just like specific framing techniques, um, there is some argument for for keeping things local and and tying things into local impacts, although some of the the literature that we review in the book doesn't actually demonstrate that local always makes a difference. Um, So I think one of the important things is to... So, okay, so here's sort of the silver bullet, the kind of typical, stereotypical recommendations for a climate change educator. Make it local, make it relevant to your students' lives, keep it positive and community-based. Um, so those are, those are all good things, but I think the, the, the key thing is probably to test things out. Mm-hmm. Right, like create your lesson plan, run it, you know, try a few things. If that doesn't work, practice adaptive management and try something else.
0: Yeah, because it's still an emerging field. you know, right. And, and yeah, the, what those, those, those bullet points, the silver bullets that you mentioned, you know, keeping it local and also making it personal, not, not on a political level, but just like, what was it like 20, 30 years ago? And you know, if you're from upstate New York, the, there used to be snow on the ground right now. Um, Halloween used to be done in the snow a lot of the time, you know, and, and that snow lasted throughout the entire, the entire season. It snowed uh, by Thanksgiving, there was a, a base of snow that never melted, and so just using that as a framework, like okay, I, it, it seems to be warmer now. Um,
1: and and yeah. one of the neat things about, I mean, there's lots. So there's lots of long-term weather data so that you can access. And then one of the neat things that you know you can do in a classroom long-term is actually track that. So phenological, where you're tracking things year by year, looking at when when flowers are blooming, or looking at and and tracking that in your classroom is always a nice way of collecting that kind of data. That's interesting. I was also gonna say, um, we have colleagues at the Cornell Institute for Climate Smart Solutions who sometimes just don't talk about climate. Like they talk about climate without talking about climate. Mm -hmm. So there are so many different co-benefits or benefits to taking a a climate change action like like no tillage farming, for example, when they work a lot with farmers. So if you're doing, if you're practicing no-tillage farming, and you're not uh, plowing under your fields at the end of every every season, then you're hopefully maintaining some soil base, and you have less erosion and lesser, so less soil goes into the water. And so there's just some like best practices for farming that also wind up being climate change actions. But depending on who you're talking to, unto whom you're talking, it's a farming thing or it's a climate thing. Then you don't have
0: to name it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels, you know, that earlier on, you know, 34 years ago, the term was global warming, and mm-hmm. that clearly wasn't, that, the messaging wasn't good on that. Yeah. And so, I, you know, you hear more and more climate change. Uh, but even that has now become so, it's mm-hmm. uh, a loaded term.
1: Well, it's funny because the Bush administration was the administration that changed global warming to climate change in their government Interesting. reports. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't even exactly. want to think of what the current administration is doing. But um,
2: so, can I just add? Yeah. I think one of the things also to get a, a, over this divide, which I think is actually going to be lessening, because of you know so many disturbances that we're seeing this year, and we even see the president no longer saying this is a hoax, but saying it might be happening, but you know we'll deal with it. That kind of thing. So the the deniers, I think are losing a little bit of steam, but they still feel threatened because the solutions, which if they threat, if they feel like they threaten jobs or their identity, as Annie mentioned, are threatening. So I, you, it's hard to believe something if you think what we're going to do about it is threatening. But I think one of the things that Annie did when she worked in, in coastal Virginia that I found very impressive was she was working in communities where there were people who were skeptical and very conservative, and there were people who were more liberal and more open. But she found something that they all cared about regardless of what they were doing, and I don't know if you want to elaborate on that, but so you can find something that the whole community cares about and work on that together.
0: Yeah, please tell us.
1: So we started an oyster restoration project and a marsh restoration project at a little uh, satellite campus that was just north of where the field station, that it was just called the Chincoteague Bay Field Station, and it's in Wallops Island, Virginia. and we have this little satellite campus in Greenbackville, Virginia that uh, lost 12 feet of land between Hurricane Sandy and Irene mm-hmm. and like exposed the septic tank which was no longer in operation. We had this little fisheries old fisheries building on on the site. Anyway, we I remember going there with my executive director after Hurricane Sandy and kind of looking at the site and thinking to ourselves, "Okay, what are we gonna do so that we don't lose this building the next storm? We don't have millions of dollars to fill in this shoreline. What can we do? And we wound up consulting with the Nature Conservancy who had done a lot of oyster work further south on the eastern shore. Anyway, long story short, we were able to gather this, um, a, a pretty diverse group of community members around the idea of oyster restoration. Because oysters are a really key economic driver and cultural symbol and foodway on the eastern shore um, and that that site in particular was uh, had been the the landing point for oysters coming over from Chincoteague Island in the 19th century. They come over from Chincoteague Island on the ferry and then they would be loaded right there at our site on the train and taken up to mm-hmm. New York City and Philadelphia. Um, but due to, you know, for a number of reasons like disease and water pollution um, And, you know, poor water quality, the oyster population has been decimated in that area. But they were starting to come back, according to some of the scientists we were working with. So we did an oyster restoration project, and we're able to gather all of these different voices together. They didn't all come and volunteer, but a lot of them came to our community meetings and participated. um, So it was just a really nice. And we visited, we went to the church meetings, and we did things in the fire hall in the town so that it was... Because the firemen are very trusted representatives of the town, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was it was really fun. That
0: sounds like it's a, uh, a great success story yeah. um, in finding something that everyone could agree yeah. on that it was non-controversial. That's right. brilliant. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and
2: I just wanted to add that in addition to restoring the um, oyster populations, the physical structures of the oyster right. reefs that the volunteers were installing they help to protect the shoreline, which is how we come back to the right, loss yeah. of the shoreline.
0: That's perfect, just like you were saying with the farming, just don't have to mention that it's gonna help uh, reduce the uh, impact of climate change, but it right.
1: does. That's
0: great, that's great. And, then, and it brings up one of the, the um, um, words that I, I saw many times in the book about uh, trusted messengers,
2: mm-hmm.
0: having someone that they could trust, as you were saying, firemen delivering this message, or someone in the church. Um, those are able to bridge the gaps, yeah. which is pretty neat. Um, what are your thoughts um, in general about the field of um, environmental education and how the field is, is currently communicating about climate change?
1: I think that environmental educators are starting to move. I think people, people are definitely moving away from the one one stop. Like, here are the five things that you can do. Recycle, turn off your lights, shut off your water. Um, and in part, that's because there have been some really successful training programs like the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation and just this intuitive sense that those things aren't enough. So and one of the people that I've talked with that isn't in this book um, but also was one of those climate change community fellows for, she's, she's been working with uh, National Audubon Societies in, or not National Audubon societies. sorry, Independent Audubon Societies in New England and doing this kind of training with her, um, with the staff. So teaching them about climate change and then having the staff plan climate change action projects in the communities so that there's always, it's not just an education opportunity, it's an action opportunity, so I think those two things are being linked more often, and actually, so the North American Association of Environmental Education has a um, project right now that's really looking at okay, what makes us what makes successful environmental education? And so, one of the most recent articles that came out this past year by Martha Monroe and her colleagues at University of Florida was just this liter- huge literature review of climate change education programs, and that that uh, personal relevance and um, interactivity during climate change programs were, were big drivers of a feeling of ha- the program having been successful.
0: Makes sense, makes sense. Uh, can
1: I, you yeah, can I you should add, so add um, yeah. Barmellan?
2: Well, I'm gonna put in a plug for Annie's work and our collective Cornell work, because as I said, we have a climate change online course available to anybody all over the world. It's non-credit and we've taught it three times and we'll probably be teaching it again in the fall, but there's two things I want to mention about it. One is that, as Annie mentioned, on the independent Audubon societies, in our course, the students, if they're going to get our Cornell certificate, they have to do an action project also, and so we have a huge collection now of different action projects, and Annie mentors the students um, from the different countries on those projects. Second is that Annie and another colleague of ours, Alex Kudryaf, Steph, and I, we were just at a conference over the weekend with the organization called Drawdown. And oh they have 100 climate solutions on their websites, some of which I could do as an individual. For example, reduce food waste, not take such big portions maybe, and throw them out. Um, and some of them are just things you wouldn't think of maybe in the U.S., like educating girls Um, and others are wind power and so forth. So we are going to be developing a new uh, MOOC, a new open online course, where we have people take these drawdown solutions and then discuss them, because we have students from Nigeria where educating uh, girls might be very important, and we have students from Binghamton where there might be another solution, and then sort of uh, think about what solutions Best apply to their own context and then take take an action. And the nice thing about drawdown is that there's a lot of information on climate science, but not a lot on what I can do, and not a, even less on what's the most effective thing that I can do. So the fact that drawdown has prioritized these one through hundred, um, you might want to just start with the top ten. It's easier. Um, It's really helpful information because, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Jonathan, that, you know, you you feel like a lot of people are hanging their head in despair because of the IPCC report. Um, It's nice to know that, you know, smaller things that I might be able to do, lifestyle changes or maybe joining in and supporting certain policies, um, are some of the top most effective action and as I said, if you can take get your network to join in with that app that you're developing <laughs> then, uh, <laughs> the, the, Actually, somebody Stan, call it, yeah. Somebody at Stanford I think is beating us to it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> They're supposedly combining fitness and sustainability one oh, app. but some of the Chinese have been doing these apps too. that some okay. of the students in our courses that are like university students that are in uh, IT um, so um, Anyways, I think that effectiveness knowledge is really, really helpful. Maybe not convince the skeptic, but for somebody like us who wants to do something, but know what's the most important thing we can do, very valuable. So we'll be incorporating that into some of our educational offerings, also. Wow,
0: that is super exciting to hear. It's super useful information. <laughs> that I, I will include the the link to draw down okay. in the in the description the, cool. in the um, podcast, as well as a link to the online course that you you offer. But that's what's so exciting is that. You know, you're, you are teaching, you're educating students, uh, but you're not just giving them intellectual knowledge. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, these, This idea of, of each module having an action project. Okay. They're actually making a difference, not right. just learning about something. Mm-hmm. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So you guys, um, as educators, are also activists in many, many ways. So mm-hmm. that's really exciting, and that's cutting-edge um Information and, and cutting-edge actions that, that uh, you guys are doing to help save the world, and, and, and we're so grateful. We're also very proud to be uh, publishing your new book, and um, it's available now. Um, it's available open access as well. Um, you are trying to get the information out to as many people as possible. So you guys are doing great work, and we're, we're really excited to be publishing this book. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That was Annie Armstrong and Marianne Krasny co-authors of the new book, Communicating Climate Change, A Guide for Educators. As a loyal podcast listener, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount when purchasing the paperback. Go to our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu, and use the promo code 09POD at the checkout. You can also download the free open access ebook from our open access website, Cornell Open, at cornellopen.org, and that link is also on the main webpage for the book. The free ebook can also be downloaded from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Play, as well as most institutional libraries. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast.